Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1920-7. You're now listening to the B-side of this podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that the songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd also love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music, or at least heard something new. Today's musicians, Art Hickman and Paul Whiteman, were some of the first big band leaders employing nearly a dozen band members at once in order to make a new jazz sound come to life on their records. By taking the lead from Jelly Roll Morton and W.C. Handy, who weren't able to record on their own yet due to race, but would be soon, Whiteman especially got a head start over the originators of his style, but talent still has to deliver where creativity has lacked. Art Hickman starts off today's listening with a weak entry that scores an 11 out of 25 points. In Hold Me While You Can Hear Hickman's innovative arrangement, including saxophone in his band, we really get an early taste of why it was that Hickman was going to be on his way out of music, and just how innovative Paul Whiteman was going to sound in the jazzy big band space. This track featured a much less engaging version of the jazz sound, and while the performers are solid musicians on other tracks, on this one they sound more like buzzing insects interfering with each other rather than busy voices interacting, as in the Whiteman material, and authenticity and innovation start off poorly with twos. Worse still, the song is actually annoying to listen to, which could be due to the recording or to the song itself, but continues its lackluster streak with a two in catchiness. The song's musicians overall are competent to receive a three, But as the song lacks a solid artistic component and actually fails to articulate that jazz was a critical component of the composition at all, it finishes with the fifth category in a two. We last reviewed The Love Nest via Joseph C. Smith's version in 1920-5's episode. In that version, he had attempted to make the John Steele version from episode 1920-2 more danceable, and in doing so, had stripped out much of what made that song good and made it boring but faster. In this rearrangement of The Love Nest, a similar tactic is used by bandleader Art Hickman to make the tune more catchy, but Hickman is more successful. By abandoning the slower tempo, he attempts the same trick as Smith, but then jazzes it up and incorporates violin to sing the lyrics dramatically with vibrato. For that effort, authenticity is a 3, but innovation is a 4. Likewise, this is reasonably catchy and receives a 3, and the competent players follow suit with mastery. Finally, the song earns a three for artistic statement, since the song is lyricless but invokes the emerging art form of jazz to make it speak. A second reworking of John Steele's music by Hickman, Tell Me Little Gypsy, was likewise lyricless but much more successful in its attempt to jazzify the song. Steele fell short in authenticity when we reviewed this song in episode 1920-2, since he was in character and didn't do a convincing job of playing the lover seeking answers from a gypsy fortune teller. But in this arrangement, the tune is meant as a jumping off point for Hickman's band that an audience would be familiar with. And jump off they do, earning a four for authenticity by forging a unique and recognizable sound for themselves. The song is able to forge ahead with this piece by making a more danceable song out of the vaudeville performance and gets a four for innovation and for catchiness. Earning a four in mastery also, the song shows a much more loose and jazzy ability within the band, and that swing would have made this song interesting to hear in a club or ballroom setting. Though the source material lacks any serious content, for arranging the song in the emerging jazz style, which Jelly Roll Morton said you could apply to any song if you were good enough, the song earns a three for artistic statement. From Hickman's 1920 high of a score of 19 to this low of 10 for Sweet and Low, we see twos across the board. 
After Tell Me Little Gypsy is hard to go backwards to this waltz, and the poor recorded quality doesn't help matters. We've just come from what the flappers would be dancing to, back to what their parents were playing on the gramophone at home, and it's not a fun shift to make. The song not only comes off melodramatic, but also too soft at the same time, approaching the feel of a lullaby with violin. Simply, the song is too sweet and too low to work in this recording. Finishing up Hickman's 1920 works, we have a 13 point in those draft and blues. Unfortunately, Hickman doesn't offer the song up with vocals here, since they cover an interesting artistic statement that seems funny when you hear it a hundred years later. In the original song, the singer reminds all the young women who are sending off their recently drafted boyfriends that they need to be chipper about it so they don't bum them out. Instead of being honest with their lovers and telling the men that they're upset with them leaving, the young ladies are encouraged to just blame it on a case of, quote, those draft and blues, so that the men can leave with a clear mind. This seems like a really strange way to approach the situation, but I can also believe that someone thought it was good advice because it was 1920, and the song gets a three for authenticity. For innovation, the song receives a three with its reimagining of the original, but it's not catchy and earns a two there. The band falters and earns a two for mastery with the simple tune, and while the artistic statement would otherwise be higher, without the vocals to back the song up here, the song earns a three for the expression. While better overall for 1920, Whiteman also had some below-average songs like this one, Whispering. The song starts out relatively standard and even has a more regimented sound borrowing from marching bands of the early century, and possibly showing Whiteman's naval band experience inadvertently. However, the song starts to swing more and fiddle and slide whistle fill out what serves as the vocal part along with a rhythm banjo. All these instruments really beg the question, what was it like to be in one of the most well-known and successful bands of the time, but then to be the slide whistle player? It's a forward-facing part like the singer, so was it a good job, or was it like playing the triangle in an orchestra, where you also have other roles to play that are a bit more respectable? I'd love to know more if you know more about it, or if you're a triangle player in an orchestra, but in any case, I'd rather be the violinist than the slide whistle guy. Being able to play neither, I guess I'll have to settle for the kazoo. When we look at authenticity for bands that play without vocals, we need to understand their sound and how it lends itself to the message that they're trying to portray. Since in Whispering, the Whiteman band doesn't have much of a unique sound at all, they earn a three in authenticity and in innovation. The band earns a two in catchiness since this song doesn't really pick up with any sort of momentum until three quarters of the way through, and while the band is competent, earning a three in mastery, they lack saying much at all in terms of musical vocals and round out the song's 13 score with a 2 in artistic statement. On the other hand, going from below average to bottle rocket, the Japanese Sandman grabs you right from the start and doesn't let go. With its exotic drum beats and clarinet section playing ascending and descending runs, the song immediately transports you and holds your ear at the same time. The band has a clearly developed sound here, and not just in the opening and closing sections, but also throughout, and the song earns a 4 for authenticity. Innovation earns a four and holds something interesting that our more choreographed listeners probably caught. This was a foxtrot. While it may seem dated now, the foxtrot was only invented in 1914, and it was a big deal. To understand that, picture in your head what you think of when you picture couples doing a waltz. It's probably 50s high schoolers being taught how to dance awkwardly, or royal courts full of proper ladies and lords, but in either case, the partners always seem to leave room for the Holy Spirit with an arm's length between them while they do scripted and strict choreography. For all you bumpers, twerkers, and grinders out there, you know the kind of people who like to dance close but also learn about 1920s music, 
You can thank Harry Fox for inventing his trot, because in a foxtrot you can get close and move around the floor. Because of its success with the dance beat and the attention-grabbing construction, the song receives a 4 for catchiness. The song receives a rare 5 for mastery since the band was in rare form, playing complex material in their own and really interesting ways, but they receive a 3 for a lack of an articulated statement and expression. Continuing to fill out our concept of the Whiteman sound, Wang Wang Blues has a stupid name but does a great job of incorporating the New Orleans jazz sound and gets a 4 for authenticity. To be clear, Whiteman's band isn't from New Orleans, and they're working off of Jelly Roll Morton's and W.C. Handy's soundscape, but they do a convincing job with it. The Whiteman sound is especially innovating in the sections where they feel loose and improvised, and critics of Whiteman, especially who uh, accuse them of cultural appropriation, would say that they didn't do this well enough. But to me, the song earns a 4 for innovation there. The song is reasonably catchy and earns a 3, as well as a 3 in mastery. If the song continued on the trajectory of the first half, it would have been a 4 in terms of mastery, but especially the second third of the song drags on very repetitively. Highlights, however, lie in the band departing from and coming back to the bass horns in their overlapped solos. This coordinates them in a way that makes it feel like they're walking to the same destination, but taking different paths to get there. Lastly, for artistic statement, the lyricless song receives a 3. Finally, Whiteman's Anytime, Any Day, Anywhere is an average song and receives a 14 of 25 points, with threes across the board except for a two in catchiness. The song is simply better with vocals, and this version doesn't do a great job of arranging it without them. There are no efforts to replace the vocals with fiddle or violin, and the clarinet is too repetitive to do a great job. The song is more or less forgettable, and part of that is owed to its less jazzy and improvisational feel, which contribute to a lack of authenticity. Today we focused on two artists, one at the beginning of his ascent and one at the end of a career, but both focused on big band arrangements and jazz. For the year of 1920, Paul Whiteman comes out on top with an average of 16 points compared to Hickman's 13.8. We want to know what you think, whether or not you agree with us, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer. So make sure to find the subreddit's dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review or reach out through an Anchor voicemail. If you leave us an Anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcasting playlist. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. We'll be back on Thursday to do a wrap of the year 1920, as well as focus on some artists that only had one or two songs to review, and some excellent covers from Marilyn Monroe, Aretha Franklin, and Ed Ames of songs that aren't otherwise on Spotify in their original form. Until next time, I've been your host Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here. back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Four days a week, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of episode 1920-7, where we'll be highlighting two artists who made a big impact on big bands and big jazz to match, Paul Whiteman and Art Hickman. 
Now these band leaders let their music do the talking and said a lot about the direction music would be heading without using lyrics or vocals. But when you have a big band big enough, you can use a slide whistle as a singer instead. When you think of big bands, names like Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman and sounds of the swing music from the 30s and 40s probably come to mind. And those certainly are the biggest names in big band music, but they definitely weren't the first. For that honor, we have to look back to 1913 when Art Hickman founded a sextet in San Francisco. They found some success, and I guess they thought their shares were too high, so they hired 21 other people. I don't know at what point you go from a medium band to a big band, but it's definitely before you hit 21 people somewhere. Now, to be fair, not all 21 musicians work together at once, but there are pictures of Hickman's band that show at least 10 members, including two banjos and three saxophones. Hickman himself played the drums and the piano. Hickman was born in 1886 in Oakland, California, and by 1920 his career had made enough impact that he would have developed the big band style and even be credited as having one of the first jazz bands, though that doesn't really line up with reality. But even being wrongly credited with such a lofty accomplishment places you in rare company, and Hickman certainly did pioneer the use of jazz saxophone. In today's songs by Hickman, you'll hear a much jazzier and exciting version of other well-known songs of the day, including Tell Me Little Gypsy and The Love Nest. As Hickman's career was coming to an end in 1920, Paul Whiteman's band was just building up steam and would go on to be one of the most popular bands in the United States for most of the 20s. Born in Denver in 1890, Whiteman started the viola at a young age, and by 17 he would be playing the instrument for the Denver Symphony Orchestra. Only seven years later, he'd be playing with the San Francisco Symphony, and in 1918, he'd be conducting his own 12-piece naval band. After World War I, he started the Paul Whiteman Orchestra at the age of 28, and began recording for Victor in New York to immediate fame and accolades. From then on, Whiteman was known as the King of Jazz, to which Duke Ellington said in his biography that, quote, no one as yet has come near carrying that title with more certainty and dignity. Titles or not, Whiteman's band would go on to hold at least 30 members at once, so big was sure. Today we'll be hearing some of Whiteman's band's early works in Wang Wang Blues and Whispering. But you're not here to listen to me talk, you're here to listen to music, so let's get to it. If you're not already listening to this part of the podcast through the Spotify playlist, it's highly recommended that you look up the show on Spotify by searching for Cunningham's Law Review. On our Spotify page, you'll find a playlist that features this, the side A of the podcast, each of the songs we'll be listening to for today, and side B of the podcast where we recap the songs we've heard and review each of them on their own. Today's playlist is posted on Spotify under the title Cunningham's Law Review 1920-7. You can also find the link to the playlist on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing, so make sure to join us on the subreddit or leave us an anchor voicemail. That's all for side A of episode 1920-7. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on side B. Listen.